Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. You're listening to episode 206 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. If you're a new listener and you're a woman, I have a gift for you. A few months ago, I wrote this ebook on how to increase your sexual desire because that's the number one question I get in my practice from my female clients. So if that's something that you're curious to learn more about, you get to download the book completely free. The link is on the show notes. So in the book, I'll talk about what are some of the common reasons that cause someone to struggle with this issue, and I offer some possible solutions. Today, we're going to talk about sexual narcissism. This is a topic that's been a fascinating area of research, at least for me, that I found that many people, they don't have information about it. That's why I wanted to invite a researcher to come and tell us a little bit about what is sexual narcissism and more importantly, how do we know if we are dating a sexual narcissist? Because a person can be a sexual narcissist, but not necessarily be a global narcissist. Our guest is Dr. Catherine Clement. Dr. Clement is an assistant professor of psychology of women and gender at the University of Bemidji State. Their primary teaching interests are human sexuality, gender, and research method. Their major research interests include sexual violence, how transphobia relate to other systems of oppression, and transgender patients' expression in healthcare. They also have a number of different published articles. If you are interested to learn more about their scientific contributions, you can check the link below for the full bio. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Catherine Clement. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm excited and honored to have Dr. Catherine Clement in our show. Dr. Catherine, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. So I'm very uh, looking forward to this conversation. I wanted to have someone talking about sexual narcissism for a while, and I came across the article, the journal article you co-authored, and I'm so excited that this was a, this is an area that you've done research on it. So tell us, what is sexual narcissism? Well, it is very similar to regular or, or I guess global narcissism. Global narcissism is a personality trait. We also like to, in the popular discourse, just sort of armchair quarterback diagnose people as narcissists. I can think of somebody right now very easily who a lot of people consider to be a narcissist. But anyway, sexual narcissism is narcissism within the domain of sexuality. So within a sexual or romantic relationship, somebody who really focuses on sex in the relationship and, and how they can get it. So someone who's really focused on being owed sex and, and getting the sex that they feel they deserve, whether or not they're even actually in a relationship. 
it. So the project that I am talking about today, I really do want to give a shout out to my co-authors who are all undergraduate research assistants. They are all wonderful and, and lovely people. And so I'm very grateful for all the help that they did on this project. But sexual narcissism, from our perspective, we uh, used a validated scale, the sexual narcissism scale, which has four specific components, sexual entitlement. And I think a lot of people get entitlement and narcissism, they think they're the same. And they are very similar, but I think it's right to say that narcissism is a broader concept and entitlement just fits under that umbrella. So narcissism, sexual narcissism, in this case, has four components, the sexual entitlement, so feeling as though you deserve sex or you're owed sex, somebody owes you sex for, you know, you paid for their dinner or you gave them a ride home or something like that, low sexual empathy. And the, the lack of empathy is really a key feature for any kind of narcissism. When somebody is high on a narcissism measure, we usually see that they're just out for themselves, high self-interest, low regard for anybody else. So they really are just out for number one. Who cares about you know your partner, your friends, your family, anybody else, literally. So we would expect somebody who's high in sexual narcissism to not have a lot of sexual empathy. They don't care if their partner is in pain. They don't care if their partner isn't having a satisfying or you know orgasmic experience experience, who cares? Like, I got mine. I don't care about you. We also see that people who are high in sexual narcissism have an inflated sense of their own skill or prowess. So they might think that they are super great in bed, but in fact, not so much. So there is also this inflated sense of what they perceive their skill to be. And the final thing is sexual exploitation. How much are they going to manipulate people? So with the sexual entitlement, we see that people feel they're deserved or owed sex. And then with the sexual exploitation, what are they going to do to get that sex that they think that they deserve? So that actually, that combination between entitlement and exploitation was really the sort of beginning part of this project. So really, the, the focus of looking at these manipulative dating techniques or really, I just pulled a lot of techniques from pickup artistry websites and, and community lexicon, but that really fits within the sexual exploitation. How are you going to exploit somebody else, whether or not they're a long-term partner, into getting you the sex you think you deserve? Well, so funny that you talked about people, everyone thinks someone is diagnosing someone with a narcissism, and I feel like... Like everyone think like their exes or like most people think about, oh, my ex was a narcissistic person or had narcissism. But you're right that it's it's more specific than that. And, you know, as you were talking about sexual nar- narcissism and different part of this scale, I wonder, so I, as a psychologist, I work with a very diverse population. And sometimes I get people who are very rooted in a patriarchal society and I wonder how much like what would be the similarity and difference because sometimes I feel like when it's in some of the traditional couples is kind of thinking about like you know my wife owes sex to me or you know women are not sexual so that doesn't matter what she experienced so how is this different? Oh that is that is really a great question it's it's really hard to say I would 
as a social psychologist, I approach things like personality and, and the behaviors that people engage in from a very situational or at least interactional perspective. So it's not always this person is a monster and that's why they do the things that they do. It's that, well, there are situational influences or there's an interaction between situational pressures and, and that uh, dispositional or personality driven bit or trait that's in there to begin with. So we could say that some of this could be a natural variation of personality traits. So they're just, for whatever reason, their temperament, growing up, biology, whatever combination of factors that makes them the wonderful person, possibly a wonderful person they are, is, is, is part of that is their narcissism. So that could be part of the variance or part of the reason that's driving this behavior. But absolutely also sociopolitical context matters. So somebody who is raised, like a man who is raised with the idea that I am the head of the relationship or the head of the marriage, the head of the household, and my wife, my partner just bows to me because that is how I was raised. Whether that, it doesn't even need to have a religious context. Some people, even if they're uh, not highly religious, still, still have those beliefs because, you know, systemic sexism, patriarch, like this is, this is our society. This is what we are mostly all living in. So there's also those situational factors that are driving this as well. Absolutely. If you are told effectively from the time you were born that you are in control, that you are in charge, that you you should brook no questions in your relationship and your, your female partner should acquiesce to every demand you have, that's going to be really difficult to be in a relationship and realize I'm not actually with a blow-up doll. I'm with a person who has their own body, their own desires and wants and boundaries. That would be hard to reconcile. So I suppose I have a little bit of empathy for people who begin a relationship expecting everything's going to be this wonderful yellow brick road and it'll be wonderful and she'll give me sex whenever I want. Oh no, she's tired or she doesn't want it that way or she wants to have an orgasm. What's going on? I, I I can sort of understand how that would be jarring. But this is, I guess, one way that toxic masculinity and patriarchy really does hurt everyone, not just women and non-men. But yeah, definitely the, the social norms and expectations we have about gender and, and relationships absolutely play into this. Well, to be fair, also, I had uh, many couples from patriarchal kind of background that they valued mutual pleasure in, in the kind of sexual realm. So it doesn't, uh, it's not necessarily kind of only situation or also it's not an excuse for like, you know, saying that I'm, I am who I am and I'm not going to change things. I love that you talked about dating in the research. And that's, that's been a kind of area I always thought about that, like, you know, because people, when things doesn't work out, they always internalize the blame and also kind of thinking about, okay, maybe I did something that caused this person to show up this way versus, as you mentioned, kind of like narcissism, something innate. So tell us more about your research. Well, so this whole project, so, so the, the study that we published is actually the first phase of a larger model testing project 
it originated from actually an occupational stress, so a workplace stress model. And I, I really don't want to walk down the theoretical path of talking about conservation of resources theory, but shout out to the Brower et al. 2011 paper that got me started on this. The idea is that sexual, or not sexual, I'm sorry, psychological entitlement is going to lead people to think that they have an inflated sense of self, an inflated sense of resources. I am awesome and wonderful. So in a dating context, I would consider this to be, I have an inflated sense of my own mate value in evolutionary context. So I am a catch. Who wouldn't want to get with me? But that could be influenced by how much we're buying into some of these manipulative dating messages or beliefs. So the idea that power in a relationship is a zero-sum game and men and women, and of course this is always within the context of cross-gender relationships, men and women are always vying for power. And if you don't have the power in a relationship, you're, you don't have the power. Like you can't have a little bit, it's all or nothing. So if you have, and those are considered adversarial sexual beliefs, if you're high in that, if you buy into the idea that sex is a commodity and I can do things to get better at obtaining that commodity, that can impact your inflated sense of your own worth or catchiness. And that can lead to you having specific dating expectations. Okay, so I think I'm a great catch. I have all these skills in my back pocket. I think that power in dating relationships is a zero-sum game. Why don't I have any phone numbers? Like, why isn't anyone calling me back? Why am I getting rejected? And if we have those unmet dating expectations, that's going to lead to stress. You look around, you're like, I should like be in a wonderful relationship but I'm not, like I'm getting all these messages, I'm a man. This is definitely a, a male-centered model, though I assume that at, at some level it, it doesn't matter the gender. But one of the motivations for my switching the domain of this from the workplace to the dating realm was seeing mass murder effectively, uh, the connection between a large-scale mass shootings and domestic violence. One of the best predictors of mass shootings we have right now in the States is domestic abuse. Mass shooters generally have a history of sexual and domestic abuse to their relationship partners. So uh, why? <laughs> like, Is this a stress response? Are they feeling just as though they're not getting the sex that they want? Is, is, there, is it like frustration that's spilling over and, and leading to aggression? And we do see that sexual narcissism is positively related to previous sexual aggression or coercive sexual behavior, like trying to make people have sex with you or guilt them into it. And also uh, sexual narcissism predicts future sexual aggression. So that's, that's one of the, the scary sides of sexual narcissism. If you're in a relationship with somebody who's high on this, like you might be at risk for experiencing sexual aggression from your partner, which is scary. Absolutely. Well, tell us that I bet like many of our listeners now they're thinking, oh God, maybe my partner is a kind of like sexual narcissist. What are some of the red flags? What are some of the warning signs that can people reflect on and to see and assess for themselves that this is there is there is a sign for it or not? That is a really great question. And I feel like there's probably not one giant ra waving red flag that I could point to, though the lack of empathy is absolutely core to narcissism at large. So if you notice that your partner does not care, like you have a bad day and they really just don't seem to care. 
And that's all the time. That's not just, oh, I had a really bad day too, and I can't do any kind of emotional labor for you. It's all the time. They don't seem to care at all. They're very focused on themselves. They might also be super focused on sex within the relationship. So they're not caring about emotional intimacy or disclosing secrets or dreams and desires. They just want the sex. Like they're here just for the sex. They might also use some manipulative tools to try to get that sex. So gaslighting, like making you think something that is happening that isn't or something isn't happening that is happening. Basically making you think that they're, that you're, as you mentioned earlier, that, that it's your fault. Like, oh, I didn't mean to make him mad or I didn't, you know, I didn't think she would be this upset by it. So it's my fault. I shouldn't have made them upset. Also, just being really one-sided in sex and, and intimate actions in general. So not being concerned. Again, like, I want it now. I'm ready to go. Even if you're not warmed up yet or you're not really feeling it, like you could do it, but you're not super into it. Like not caring about things like that, not caring if you finish or if you're chafing or any feedback really in bed. And then, and this is true just regardless of whether your partner might be high in sexual narcissism or not, a partner who doesn't respect your boundaries, that deserves a conversation. Everybody, actually just telling my students this in my human sexuality class, everybody gets to set their own boundaries in their relationship. And then your partner gets to decide whether or not those boundaries are workable for them. So whatever those boundaries are, putting the toilet seat down, you know, getting, get, uh, meeting parents, like whatever they are in a relationship, you get to set your own boundaries and those boundaries should be respected. So if you have a partner who's always blowing past your boundaries and then trying to make you think that it's your fault somehow, adding a little gaslighting, that's definitely a problem. Possibly high in sexual narcissism, but just in general, worth a conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about how in a kind of variety of ways these people show up are kind of very self-centered. I know that like one of the strategies I hear from clients that sometimes they're their partners who have this kind of features they talk about is like, you know, pressuring the partner, you know, my ex was doing this. Why are you not doing this? Or like, you're, you, you don't love me if you don't do this. Oh, yes. So I think these are some of the things that like, it can steer some of the emotions and, and the receiving end of it. People think about, oh, maybe, maybe uh, I am too naive. Maybe there's something wrong with my boundaries. But I love that you talked about boundaries and you get to set your own boundaries. And I think that can make sex more exciting. So what are some of us, so if, if people are not very clear about their boundaries, especially today I have clients and listeners that they share with me that from childhood, they learn that their boundaries are not important. So I feel like these are the people who are vulnerable to get kind of involved in this relationship. How do we know what are, I know it's such a simple and kind of silly question, but what, how do we know what are our boundaries when it comes to sex and sexuality? That is, that can be a lifelong exploration of ourselves and what we want. And those boundaries can change too. I'm actually going to give a shout out to Dr. Lindsay Doe of Sexplanations. She's amazing. She has, she's got a YouTube channel. She's an excellent sex educator, but she has a, a wonderful video about making a want, will, won't list 
which I actually assign to my students as well. And the idea is whatever domain, whether it's sex, whether it's relationships, even friendships, like you could literally do this for anything. You have columns for things that you want to do, things that sound good to you. Like say we're talking about relationships, like relationship behaviors, PDA, meeting the parents, not meeting the parents, uh, cooking together, living together, things like that. Things that you want, you think about them and you're like, oh yes, I have a very positive reaction to that. And then the middle column is things that you will do. You're not super excited about it, but it's okay. Like you would be fine doing it if partner asked. And then the final column is things you don't do, things you won't do. They are past your boundary, not interested in that at all. Having sex before marriage, certain types of sex acts, whatever. So the idea is that you set up this list, but it's not a permanent list. Like it's not set in stone. You get to shift things into different categories and people change. So maybe you say at 22, I don't want to have sex before marriage. I, you know, I want to wait till I get married. And at 30, you're with a partner you've been with for five years and you think, I think I'm ready to have sex, but I don't want to get married yet. So now we've shifted the categories a little bit. So it doesn't have to be set in stone, but it's still, it's still your boundary. Like it's, even if it's not permanent, tattooed with ink, like you still get to have that boundary respected. Absolutely. And, and I tell people that like, if you are unsure, it's helpful if you be more kind of rigid with the boundaries, things that, you know, kind of see, okay, I'm going to, I know this feels okay for me. So that would be my boundary. And then as you evolve, as your relationship maybe evolve, as your interest as a person evolve, then you can uh, kind of change and switch the boundaries if you want. But uh, again, it's so important to be protective of yourself because I feel especially in this state and day and age, there's just so many, so many factors outside that makes us vulnerable because I feel like Back in the day, if there was no dating app, then probably you were uh, meeting up and dating people from your community and perhaps Mm -hmm. you knew, so you had some information about them, you knew what Mm -hmm. what was going on. But right now, I think it's beautiful to have access to this huge, infinite number of potential mates. But then with some of these partners, we have no information who they are. So it's important for us to have our own back and thinking about what what does feel okay for me not not knowing this person and kind of being engaged in this. And then maybe we can kind of change things as as relationship or our interaction changes. And so what I'm hearing with a sexual narcissism, narcissistic person, if, if we talk about boundaries, it's not like lack of clarity. It's just more about they don't care. Oh, yes, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's the lack or the small amount of empathy, really, that is the feature there. They don't care. They deserve sex because they're an excellent sex person. <laughs> they're great at the sex and they want the sex and, and you're going to give it to them, whether they uh, coerce you or they commit some inactive sexual aggression, there's assault involved. It, do- it doesn't matter because, again, with the lack of empathy, they, they don't necessarily see those things as different. This isn't specific to sexual narcissism, but narcissism more broadly is part of, it's called the dark triad in personality theory. So it's highly correlated or highly related to psychopathy and Machiavellianism. So you'll see people who are high in narcissism are also high in psychopathy, which is also characterized by low empathy, but also impulsiveness, 
disregard for rules or laws or norms. And then Machiavellianism is, is a lot of manipulation and, and machinations behind the scenes to affect their own ends. So somebody who's high in sexual narcissism might also express some of those other traits. Like they might be very impulsive. Let's have sex without a condom or let's have sex in the car or in public. I want it. We're going to do it whether that involves coercion or, or downright assault. And also with the Machiavellianist aspect, I'm going to use these manipulative techniques. So one of the things that I like about setting boundaries too, and I love that you mentioned dating applications, because, because of the social expectations we have around gender and dating, we basically send the message to women that they need to be play their boundaries very close to the best, like they're, they're what they actually want. Like they might be on Tinder because they want to get married and have kids, but you can't say that because you're going to scare off the people that you want to date. You got to, you got to ease men into it, which is in my opinion, very insulting for men, but as a way to counteract the potential gaslighting or pick up artistry grossness, like negging, setting your boundaries out and saying, this is why I'm on this app. If you are not interested in potentially settling down and having kids, we are not a good match. We're not compatible. I wish you the best. So really just laying them out and being upfront about it, that is, that is against our social norms right now. But I think that is, that is a positive direction for us to head in. I, I, I love that idea. And I think that's very empowering because I feel like if, if, for example, your goal is to get married, you're there because of that and you're going through dozens of dates that you feel kind of pressed, the person is not ready, it's not clear about like what they want in the stage of life, then you get disappointed and then you will not have the, I guess, in a business saying best return of investment of your time <laughs> and energy. Absolutely. Uh, so, so I think it's good that you're going to be kind of owning that this is what I want. And that's, that's very empowering. And I agree with you that sometimes people have this idea that if, I, if I'm good enough, I can mm-hmm. change the person. Oh, and yes. it's just such a horrible recipe for disappointment because you can be a wonderful person, but you cannot kind of change someone's life and what they want with kind of showing how wonderful you are in bed or like what a wonderful companion you are. And I see that a lot. Yes, absolutely. And I think that goes both ways. Like you cannot sex someone into not wanting children or into Mm -hmm. not wanting to settle down just as you cannot sex someone into wanting to settle down. I am a frequent Reddit peruser um, and I see a lot of relationships letters on Reddit and it frustrates me and makes me sad how many letters it sounds like the letter writers don't actually like their partner. Like you're fighting about a thing that you sound fundamentally incompatible on. And if you were both were just honest about what your boundaries were and what your desires were, you would recognize that you're not the best fit and you could end your relationship amicably, wish each other well and find somebody who's a better fit. Absolutely. I love that you talked about this kind of uh, both sides that kind of like people need to kind of be, as you said, like very kind of upfront about their desires and wants and boundaries. And that can help people with kind of seeing if this is compatible or not. And not only for long-term relationship, for a great casual hookup sex, that's important too. I'm saying that kind of crash course of this is what I like, this I'm into, this is what we're not doing. So you know what is the playground will look like. And that can be more comforting for both parties. 
Yes. Oh, I, yes, absolutely. I love that you said that, that I am so supportive of that. Like just lay it out. Like I know it's awkward and this is a thing that my students, I try to impress upon them. Like sure, talking about sex and negotiating up front can be awkward if you have no experience with it, but it doesn't have to be. And this actually links up with some of the research that I've done in our science at BDSM lab at Northern Illinois University. We look at within the kink community, the BDSM community, what are they doing? What lessons could the non-kink community learn? And one of the things is affirmative consent and negotiating, talking about what you want the encounter to look like ahead of time so that everybody's on the same page, everybody's expectations are going to be met, and you have a, a way to signal other than like saying no, this is this, I am, I am now done with this, um, or, or we're doing something that we didn't agree on. And I think that that would be a wonderful application for everyone mm. to, to have in their lives. Yes, yes. And I know like you have tons of different research studies. I hope to have <laughs> you back in future episodes. So if our listeners are curious about your studies, about the work you're doing, where can they find that information? Well, um, I've got a Gmail uh, account, Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N dot Clement, K-L-E-M-E-N-T at gmail.com. I also tweet too much at K-R Clement is my Twitter handle. That's about it. Perfect. So it will be in the show notes for our listeners that they get a chance to write it down. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise and research. And I have tremendous uh, admiration for colleagues that they do research studies in the areas of uh, sexual wellness and sexual human sexuality, because I feel that's the area that is very understudied. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you found this episode useful and you got some information about some of the red flags related to dating someone with sexual narcissism. One of the things that at times I talk to my clients about is about discovering your type of the relationship that you are finding yourself in over and over again. Because sometimes we tend to gravitate toward similar kind of people and sometimes these people are not healthy. It's not like you cannot change your dating pattern, but with examining it and understanding your pattern, you will be able to change it in the future. So my invitation for you is to kind of like a journal about or think about what is it about these people that you find attracted what, and what are some of the early signs that you have missed. Anyhow, as always, I'm very grateful that you spent the last 35 minutes with us. If you have been listening to this show, it means a lot to me if you take a moment and leave us a review in iTunes. It will help us to rank higher and it will increase our reach. Thank you so much for being with us and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.